We're in the book of Ephesians. Our style of study when we're doing a book like Ephesians is to go line by line uh, through the entire book and really understand what it means instead of just pick out verses here and there or just kind of decide that I like to talk about this, I don't like to talk about that. So we're actually going through the part that most of us would probably say we don't like to talk about much. And we are in Paul's prescriptive verses about submission to one another. We're actually starting chapter 6 today. And if all goes well, we should be done with Ephesians in a week or two. Uh, but I need to go back to chapter 5 because there's a couple things that we wanted to just pick up from last week. There are a couple very good comments, and I'm going to try to capture them. So let me see how fast I can move through a synopsis of some of the things we need to cover from last week and then move into chapter 6. We have been looking at this verse, verse 521, submit to one another, and really trying to understand Paul's commandment that we submit to one another. And I hope tonight, by the time we're done, that we'll understand this even better. And last week, we even had to look at the Greek words that are behind this because we really want to understand the topic. So we were looking at this concept of submit, this hupotasso, and the word head, kafale, and understanding why it was that Paul says that wives are to submit to their husbands in the same way that Christ is head over the church. We spent a lot of time there. I'm going to actually hope to bring a little bit new material about it, but just move through it. You'll remember in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, we see these words being used in this context, that God the Father is going to put everything in submission under the feet of Christ. The same wording is used so that he becomes the head over everything. And that's going to actually become important when we talk about chapter 6 as well. So we also talked last week that our preferred standard when we talk about this topic is to talk about equality. That's what we like to hear. We like to hear about equality, like we like everyone just to be equal. And Paul's standard seems to be mutual submission. Why is equality not so great? Why does our society value equality so much? And Paul saying, in the body of Christ, for us to have unity, we need something greater than equality, something better. And the reason for that is because equality forces everyone to look for their own rights and for everyone to make sure that their rights are equal. And mutual submission is actually giving up our rights for one another. Christ is to be our model. And here he's saying, value others above yourself. That really is submission. Value others above yourself. Don't look for your interests, but to the interest of others. And that is Christ who is our example because he who had every right to remain within the triune nature of God and remain equal in every way, did not take advantage of that equality and rather surrendered it so that he could be the sacrifice that makes us have peace with God. And there's this part of us immediately that wants to somehow agitate for an equal treatment. And Paul is saying there's something even better than that. And Jesus himself modeled it, if you remember. He actually taught about it. That whoever exalts himself is going to be humbled. Whoever humbles himself, that's who's going to be exalted. And that if you want to be the first, you have to be the last and be the servant of all. All of what we're talking about falls under this verse. Submitting to one another. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And today, for just a few seconds, we're going to talk about this head-body analogy a little bit further. Because last week, a couple really good questions were asked, and we just didn't have time to answer them. You know, we deserve to look at it. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, he says, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, 
The head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. He sets up what some would say is a picture of headship. Keep that in mind for just a second. We also spent time last week talking about two different views and a third view offered by Dr. Sarah Sumner. And you guys know that Sarah is a friend of this group. She's taught here with us before. She's been a friend of mine. She taught at APU for a long time. But she notes that when you get into this section about wives and husbands, there's three couplets going on. The wife submits, the husband sacrifices. The wife is the body, the husband is the head. The wife is to respect, and the husband is to love. And here's what she points out, that so many of us think that submission relates to headship. And her view is that would actually make it so that the couplets don't match up. Her view is that the body and the head are supposed to go together, and you'll see in a moment pictorially why that's important that if you're going to match up the other words, respect and love go together, and submit and sacrifice go together. And now there's enough lasers on the screen for us to qualify as worship at a megachurch at this point. There's so many lasers going back and forth. <laughs> so what's the significance? What is she trying to say? Why is she saying that it's wrong for some people to think that Really, what we've been taught for so long about the reason wives are to submit is because the husband is the head and there's a causal connection between them. Why is she saying that really it's correct to say that the head analogy belongs to the body language? Well, here's the picture she's trying to draw. Remember this verse. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Her position comes down to this. Paul was describing an amazing mystery. And the only way to describe it is a picture. To see it. That what he's saying is that head and body are not about who's boss. Remember, we looked at the word head. And it doesn't really imply boss or leader. What he's trying to paint the picture of is a unified person. A body and head in unified position. And remember, Paul's whole theme in Ephesians has been unity. And in these verses about the head and the body, he actually goes out of his way to cite from Genesis about how husband and wife will become one flesh. And he uses that analogy. So the position is, all Paul is trying to highlight is by picking out the head and the body. He's trying to show the mystery of complete unity of a unified person. So that Man and woman is not the relationship of boss and servant. It's not the relationship of just the brains and the brawn. It's the relationship of one person. That they can't exist without one another. The same way that Christ and the church are unified. The same way that the Father and the Son are unified. And I want to also be clear that a lot of people have said, well, if the man is the head, then he must be the brains of the operation. In the first century, they didn't really understand neurophysiology the way we do. That isn't even in Paul's thinking. If you read Paul's language, most of the time he's talking about the place of knowledge and the place of truth. It's the heart. It's not the brain. He's not trying to say, oh, the head has the brain. That's not even what he's getting at. That's what we read into it. That's us kind of imposing our views backwards, which doesn't work. You have to ask, what did the author say? What did he mean? And it seems that according to her view, there's a very good argument here that if you unite these pairs in the right way, that he's trying to say, yes, this is the unity. That was question one that I wanted to address from last week. 
Question two, if you'll allow me to take a short detour. At the end of last week, Brittany asked a very interesting question. She said, I don't understand how God is the head of Christ. And I'm going to give a short answer because I think it's going to help us. I'm not taking a detour intentionally just because I go, hey, here's a good place to plug, make a plug for the Trinity. Um, I'm taking this detour because I think we're going to end here. This is going to be our ending point tonight if we don't break down on the way. Egalitarian thinkers, people who believe that men and women are completely equal in every respect and in all roles within the church, also have this kind of thinking in their theology. And I think actually Carissa brought it up at the very end last week as well. Their theology goes like this. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit within the Trinity are co-equal. They may have different roles, but they're co-equal. Eternally co-equal. They're never not equal. Whereas complementarians, people have a much more authoritarian view of the man within the marriage, have a different perspective. They believe that the Father is above the Son, who is above the Spirit, and they all submit in that order. And some of them would go as far as to say that the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father. Some of you are like, why do I care? <laughs> How can anybody really know? Well, it does make a difference because you, if you want to understand submission in its right way, you'd want to understand wives submit to husbands in the same way that Christ relates to the church, and in the verse we have here, just in the same way that we understand headship as Christ is to God. We think, well, what is the relationship between them? How does it work? Is he eternally subordinate? We see the Son yielding to the Father. We see the Son saying, the Spirit will come and testify about me. So is there this kind of pecking order within the Trinity? Or is it kind of egalitarian like this? Like, which way is it? And I like this view that Sarah presents, and I also like the work of another theologian by the name of I. Howard Marshall, who's really helped me to understand more about how the Trinity works. And the view is more like this. The Father places all things under the Son. We see that in Ephesians 1, and 23. That's the verse we were looking at earlier in last week. All things are placed under the Son. And the Son, in return, takes all things and gives them back to the Father. Where do I get that from? Let me read you this verse. Because at the end of tonight, I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. So if you think we're on some big detour, I want you to just listen to this for a moment because I'm going to be asking you as an application point to consider what mutual submission looks like in your life. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes this very, very interesting statement. He says, For he, meaning the Father, has put everything under his feet, meaning Christ's feet which is exactly what Ephesians 1.22 says. Now when it says everything has been put under him, being Christ, it is clear that this does not include the Father, God the Father himself, who is the one who put everything under Christ. So when he, the Father, has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, the Father, who put everything under him, which is Christ, so that God may be all in all. This is one of those really tempting verses where we could just say, I don't know what that means, let's just turn the page and move on. I gotta tell you that while I was drawing all this on the PowerPoint, my daughter was sitting in my lap and on the other screen on my computer, she was watching a video of a baby polar bear <laughs> hanging out with its mother. 
And I was looking at one screen trying to understand the Trinity <laughs> and this doctrine of eternal subordination versus mutual submission. And I was watching the polar bear on this screen and I thought for a moment, forget it. Let's just not even do this. Like, <laughs> that God could even create such a cute, cuddly creature is just proof by itself. Like, I don't even need to draw this crazy thing on the screen. But then I thought, no, you don't have that choice tonight. I was like, we could just watch a polar bear video. <laughs> Stay with me for just one more minute because I think it'll have some fruit for you. We could read something like 1 Corinthians 15, this 27 to 28, as most of us would, as I would, and just go, I have no idea what that means, and just forget it. Like, that's just weird stuff. Or we could try to understand it. And the understanding gives us really a beautiful picture. The, the Father is the one who puts everything under the feet of Christ. And Christ, after he has had everything put under him, and the scriptures say even after he has conquered everything, including all the dark powers, at the very end of time, this is a very apocalyptic verse, at the very end is going to then in turn put all things back to the Father as a presentation. And as some people would point out, it doesn't even end there. Because then God is going to exalt the Son and lift Him to be at the right hand of the Father, which literally means to replace Him. And that last replacement has caused people to sit there and think, what does that mean? When we get to heaven, is Christ, the incarnate Christ, subsumed back into the Father? Are we going to see both of them? Is there like two thrones? Is there three? Like what do we see? And no one can solve that mystery. And I'm not going to even try tonight. But the reason I think it's so fascinating is because it shows that it's not just that there's this kind of like we're all going to hang out in our equality. Philippians already tells us that Christ has said that equality is something that I will put down. It's not a subordinate relationship. I think it's true that there is such a cyclical nature of submission within the Trinity that that is how we could say they are one. That the three co-eternal persons of God love each other so much and constantly give of themselves and submit and glorify one another constantly. And that is how they are one. And what Paul is saying in Ephesians is, I want you to do the same. I want you to submit to one another in this way over and over to the point where you become one. Remember, Paul's theme in Ephesians up until this point has been that when you are in Christ, you are in Him. You are part of Him. And He is in this relationship with the Father has brought us so that we can participate in this great relationship. That's what all this submission business is about. And even when you study and spend time trying to understand, how do we say that God is love? How does the three persons of God love one another and submit to one another? Even if you study that separately, you'd get to the other side of the same coin that we're studying now, which is their unity is defined by the submission. So no wonder when Paul is saying, I want you to be unified as the body of Christ, it's all about this kind of cyclical submission. Yeah? Um, where would you fit the Holy Spirit in with this? Many of these verses don't mention the Spirit, okay? Um, to get your full Trinitarian theology, you have to then incorporate Christ's words about the Spirit and other places that talk about it. Now, in Ephesians, there are verses where he's talking about all three at the same time. But in terms of this concept of the submission, it's not expressly in one of these verses. But I will say something you haven't seen is the verses from 15 to 21 
that begin the whole submission discussion is about living filled with the Spirit. And these are examples of how it is we live filled with the Spirit. The submission to one another is his example, his ethical instruction after he's given the command of being filled with the Spirit. So it's not like you're going to find it directly in here, but it's not like Paul has excluded it either. Okay? okay. And my comment on that, by the way, would be that when we deal with Trinitarian subjects in the New Testament, a lot of times you have to put them together. And my feeling is that I don't think it's the, it's the three in one that bothers us. It's the hardest thing is to move from one to two. Once you get to two in one, which is what this is kind of about, like fitting the spirit in becomes just a matter of resolving verses together. Could you almost say that, it's the, that the spirit would be the arrows or what allows like the one to submit to the other? Since you're talking about... Like, in that submission, you're filled with the Spirit? You could, although I will say that there are places where the, that, more, that relationship between them is more expressly stated. You know, like when Jesus says, I will send the, the counselor, right? Or I must go so that he may come. Like, he will testify about me. Like, he's actually saying what's going to happen and how it's going to work, right? And it isn't just a descriptive thing. It's almost like he's saying, like, he's going to have to testify about me, right? Like, the Father sends me. Although we have verses that like, nobody let, tells me to lay down my life. I lay it down on my own accord. But then he says, and then I'm going to send you the Spirit. So a lot of people conclude, like, father's boss, son's next, then the Spirit. But those are verses that at least show that there's this relationship of roles between them. Yes, Monique. Um, just kind of more like something to point out that's helped me. Because I've kind of been going back and forth between, like, Philippians 2 and some of the Old Testament, whatever, just on my own, like, my own studies. And so I'm reading how in the Old Testament, oftentimes, like, people are killed for what seems for simple sins, and people don't understand that. And then I would go to Philippians and see how Christ laid down his life for us. So literally, he did the same thing. Like, he took sin. And so what was good for us was good for Christ. He's like, I'm going to die for this. And then I think about submission that we're talking about, humility. Also, Philippians 2, talking about how Christ kind of submitted to everything he was entitled to. Because he's God. He's entitled to everything. And he took all of that, pushed it away to die for us. So then it helps me want to submit to people because it's like if Christ who's so big and God is so big above us entitled to everything took away all of his entitlement to love us, to put our needs above like whatever was going on to save us, that's another aspect of it. And then now when you're talking about the Father and the Son submitting to each other, the way we're supposed to submit also in the church to one another, what stands out to me that I think is really cool is literally there's nothing that God has asked of us that he has not himself done first. So I just think that's kind of a neat point to like to, to realize that there's literally nothing. He could have these lofty ideas about, you know, humility and serving and because he's so perfect not have to do it, but he's literally done every single thing that he's commanded of us, including the punishment for sin. He died. Like everything. Can I turn part of your comment on its head? I think if you understand this, it's not only what you said, it's actually that Christ invites us into what he already knows. People who look at what is going on say that this triune love, this triune's mutual submission has been going on eternally. And what makes them one is what Christ is inviting us into. That the whole creation event, like you're saying, like that God didn't need to create us. He didn't need to do anything. But, but the invitation, even him revealing himself to us, inviting us to him, calling us, all of those things only come because he's trying to share what they have always had, right? So if this submission is correct, this mutual submission understanding of the Trinity is correct, 
then when Paul is instructing that to the church, then he's really only kind of giving us a piece of the, the secret sauce, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> that makes the unity of the triune God, right? And says, church, you are the same way. Body of Christ, you are to be the same with one another and with Christ. And a lot of commentators would say that by the time that Paul is writing Ephesians, which is probably the last book he's writing, the last letter he's writing, his body analogy has matured. Before it was just like the members of the body were all have different functions, but at this point he has added the head and realized that we're not just like bossed by Christ, led by Christ, we are part of Christ. And that's a profound thing by itself to show the kind of intimacy that we have as believers and that's why it's so important that we remember that this is like nothing that we do can we say is outside the body because we're one in that way. That's like a big deal though that he would even want us to share in that, to be part of that, to be one with him, that he led the example and then wants us to be in that with him. It makes you want to submit to each other because it's like it's so beautiful. It's like why fight for rights, you know, because we're not entitled to anything anyway. And who was entitled to everything didn't take it. So... Okay. Let me press forward into chapter 6. Now, we got through wives and husbands without throwing chairs at each other, so I'm hoping that parents and children will be a little bit easier. Uh, it, this is what this chapter says, starting in verse 1, chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he quotes from the Ten Commandments. The commandment that says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, do not exacerbate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So a couple of quick points for us to make. I'll point out and see if you have any comments. Notice he's addressing both children. Children mean boys and girls. And by the way, children also encompasses adult children. Because... In this time, in the first century, children did not stop having to honor their parents when they got to a certain age. In fact, you could be much older in many of the societies, even when your parents were in the 60s, and some of them, yes, they did live that long, you would still need to honor their wishes and follow what they were instructing. But he is addressing both male and female in children, which is very interesting, because many of the house codes that were addressed. Remember, Paul is kind of using the, the threefold house code model of addressing wives, children, and slaves. But he flips it completely on his head by also addressing husbands, parents, and masters, which is completely shocking to his audience. And here he does one more thing that we probably wouldn't even pick up on. He addresses females at will, who would not even be addressed in most of the codes. Like, they just don't even count, especially little girls. Like, they have very little value. In fact, fathers were allowed to kill them. Just say, I don't want a girl, and just kill them after birth. So he's addressing children, and he's saying obey parents, which is correct and biblical. It's not just fathers. It's both the father and the mother, according to the commandment, which is, again, shockingly egalitarian for this time and for any time. It goes back to the Hebrew Scriptures. I don't think we have any quibble with the commandment itself. Anyone have a quibble with honoring parents? You do? Not so much a quibble, but um, like I kind of wonder in our culture where, you know, after a while you kind of separate from your parents, like are we still supposed to be doing this? And what happens in family dynamics when like 
you disagree with your parents? Well, first of all, I think you should do it all the way through. I don't think this command is temporally found. It wasn't in their time, and I don't know why it would be in ours. However, what we really have to delve into is what does it actually mean to honor, right? Does that mean you cannot disagree? I think, we, of course, we could. In fact, there's times when I think Paul would even say, you must. One interesting thing about Paul is all this is kind of overridden by the idea that the whole church had, which is we must listen to God and not to men. And Paul makes this distinction over and over in the fact that, as we said you know, last week, that he would say to wives, like, you know, believe in Christ above the religion of your husband, right? That that, that kind of thought is in his instruction. So, again, the first priority is going to be to God. So if, you're, if the parents were doing something that has nothing to that, that's important. And I'll take this point to point out that he says, obey your parents in the Lord, by the way, does not mean if they're Christian parents or they believe in the Lord. It's the same kind of idea, obey your parents as to the Lord is a better translation. Like, as part of your submission to the Lord, as part of your life in the Spirit, obey your parents. But I actually think there's a way to disagree and still honor parents. And I think we all know that that's possible to do. I will reserve one part of it, though, is if you say, well, what if they're dead wrong, or what if they're insisting on something, or what if they're causing strife because of it, or they're insisting on something that I cannot or should not do? And I'm going to hold that for a moment, because we've got to come back to that. I would just say that um, I mean, there's a difference between how the verse says obey and then honor. They're two separate words, so it's kind of difficult to discern which one becomes more important, I guess. Well, you bring up obey, which is going to be my next point, so let me kind of put those two together. Notice that in this passage, he does not say children submit to your parents. He's changed the wording. Now, some people say they're synonymous. The submission of submit to one another and the obey, but he does seem to change the word. I mean, he could have just used, I mean, if submission is such a big deal, he could have just actually went to submission. He uses obey, and I think that's closer to the word honor than he would be to use submission, even though it's still under the same category. So there's a little bit of, we'd have, you'd have to work that out and understand what that means, because he seems like he made an intentional word choice to use obey, uh, but it's still under the real heading of submitting to one another. And then honor, of course, he's, I wouldn't say he's stuck with, but he's quoting from the way that the commandment is written, so he's not going to reword that. Cormac? Someone finds it also interesting that he didn't use the word obey for the, for the husband-wives section. Yeah, I mean, that's where people see the distinction. That he, the, of the three parts of the house codes, he says, wives submit. He says, children obey. And you'll see in a moment, he says, slaves obey. So people say, well, obedience, submission, they're very similar. It's like, well, they actually are different words in the language, and they're also different. They probably have somewhat intentional meaning. I mean, I think if we're going to look into it, they're probably a little bit different. Fathers do not exasperate your children. Why just fathers? Well, actually, the word could imply fathers and mothers. The word is actually neutral. But the reason it's translated fathers is because fathers were the ones who really would probably be guilty of this. Fathers could do anything. They could, they could you know, like I said, they could have their own children killed if they wanted to. Um, don't exacerbate your children. Don't anger them unnecessarily. Don't even put them in that position. Instead, bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. You might think, that's a very nice thing for Paul to say. Most people would be like, how dare you tell fathers how they're supposed to raise their children in any way? A father had absolute right to do anything they wanted with their kids. So the fact that Paul again says, hey, fathers, this is part of your submission. 
It's not just bring them up like raise them. It actually, that word implies nurture them, love them intimately in the way that you train them and instruct them. Uh, he's actually giving something to dads that it would be very hard for people to hear at that time. They'd be like, who are you and where do you get off? Oh, yeah, you're Paul. Okay. <laughs> How about the next one? Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. I was interested in this when I saw the translation because I've told you that the NIV translates fear as respect. So is it fear and fear in the original? It's actually slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling is actually the better translation. And with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor with their, when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours, is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. Yes? I would just say in our modern context, this is kind of hard for me to read when I hear that one of the major subjects of slavery that we talk about today is, is sex, sex trafficking and sex slavery. So how would you expect someone to serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord in that situation of the heart? Okay, so your objection is how do we apply it today, which... We have to be careful because the first step is we've got to understand what was he talking about before we say the second step, which is what does it mean for us. Let me make a comment about slavery at this time. There were a number of ways you could become a slave. You could be born into slavery. You could be captured in a war become a slave. You could become an indentured servant uh, because of debts. You could actually volunteer to become a slave if you wanted to advance your position in life. Let's say you were really, really down and out and you thought by becoming a slave you could actually... Uh, earn the favor of a certain master, which is why he's talking about favoritism. There's a shade of that in here about pleasing God, not people, because some people actually would seek out slavery as a way to escape their condition. And you could buy your freedom as a slave. Some slaves actually own slaves. Some slaves own property. Some slaves were more educated than their masters because slaves didn't do some of the work. They did all the work. So they actually would be professional slaves. So there were slaves that were accountants. There were slaves that were equivalent of like maybe many of the professions that we know today. Slaves could actually teach other slaves and they were educated in certain ways. I'm not saying that to say Paul is talking about a happy panacea of slavery. <laughs> it was harsh. You could be killed. You could be tortured. There was no limitation on what the master could do. Your condition in slavery depended totally on who your master was. I mean, your life or death, as good as it was or as hard as it was going to be, depended on who your master was. And remember, there's very little law at this time as to what they could do. Another thing you have to understand is slavery was part of the economic condition. It was probably shocking to anyone at the time to think of a world without slavery. It was just the way the world was. And I don't mean to say that to justify it. To give you an analogy, it would be the same as today if I told you there could be no more employees. I mean, you couldn't think of a world that didn't have employees. You'd think, well, how's the world work? How do people get stuff done? That's what it would be like in Paul's time to say, there's no slavery. Well, who would do the work? And I know we think, like, 
you're picturing people who are fanning themselves like big palm branches, you know, like freaking out because there's no more slaves. But this was the economic model that the whole world operated on. So Paul is not trying to create a new economic order. He's not even trying to create a new social order here. Paul seems a little unconcerned about the social impact. What he's concerned about is this gospel message of being in Christ and the unity that it fosters and the submission that gets us there. That seems to be his concern in this passage. And remember, he is kind of walking through the three house codes that were common of his time to talk about those things. So with that background in mind, what's the most shocking statement in this passage? If you could pick one. Yes. Well, he just talks about like the masters doing the same and how under God we're all equal. There's no favoritism, so you're going to be held accountable to how how you treat people on earth, whether they're below you, above you, here in this society. If they're caste systems or whatever, that's not going to fly with God. He's not going to say, "Oh, you were a master. Okay, so we're going to go easy on you." Yeah, that's got to be the most shocking statement. Let me show you this for a second. Here's why Paul might even have to say some of the things he said. In 1 Timothy, he's addressing slavery as well. And he says, all of you who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect. Why? So that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. You remember last week when he was talking about the house code in Titus 2.5 when he said wives should submit to their husband and he gives a reason so that the gospel cannot be maligned? It seems like he's concerned that people are starting to slander the gospel because it looks like the church has too much freedom. The church is telling people crazy things. Like wives and husbands, you're equal. And slaves, you're actually free. That's disruptive. People are going to start to actually have a political issue with Christianity beyond which they do. They're going to actually start to slander the gospel itself because this is getting a little crazy in here for Paul to be making all this statement. Here's another one to get idea. Remember we used this last week, Galatians 3.28. He's already said there's neither Jew nor Gentile, which freaked out the church in Jerusalem. He said there is neither male nor female, which has got to be creating waves. And that's why in Titus he might be saying, like, let's, let's keep some order and understand what these codes are. Maybe just so that nobody maligns the gospel. But here he's saying there's neither slave nor free. Like, so slaves hearing that going, really? What is that? Is that like an emancipation proclamation? Like, what are you talking about? In 1 Corinthians 7, 21 and 23, he says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Can you imagine those words in the first century? Like person who's penning the church that I kind of subscribe to has just said, if you can gain your freedom, do so. Now he probably meant buy your freedom as was the habit. Most slaves were freed by about 30 by buying their freedom. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. He's saying you're free in Christ. The one who was free is Christ's slave. And if you ask Paul what he really thinks, we're all slaves to Christ. All of us. So he's saying some pretty crazy things that might lead people to think this is subversive, this gospel message. And it could be part of the motivation that he takes time to do this. But again, the most subversive thing has got to be the masters treat your slaves in the same way. What does that even mean? Masters are supposed to respect and fear and have these sincere hearts to their slaves? 
Masters are supposed to do what? Serve wholeheartedly? They're supposed to serve the slave wholeheartedly? Is that what he's saying? That's exactly what he's saying. Some people say that if you had read this and took it seriously, slavery should have just ended among Christians at this point, instead of being not only extended, <laughs> but later sanctioned. That this comment by itself should cause people to stop. So the point I'm trying to make is, Paul has elsewhere made it pretty clear that his gospel of being one in Christ and being unified and also just being understanding who Christ is, is freeing everyone. And Paul would probably say, it's not about this life anyway. We're, we're headed to the place that really matters. But here, while we're in this life, yes, I'm going to give the normal house code of slaves, obey your earthly masters, and do it as unto the Lord. Don't try to please people. But masters, you should do the same thing. Just like fathers, you should instruct and nurture your children. Just like husbands, you should sacrifice yourself as Christ sacrificed himself. And in all three of those cases... Most of his hearers would be like, that's crazy. Just like our hearers today are saying, wives do what? Slaves do what? Now let's come back to Ray's question. We really have to understand, does that apply today? And with all of these codes, I think there's a couple things we have to do in the application as I kind of wrap it up a little bit. First question is, in all of the three codes that we've looked at, was Paul's prescription based on protection of the gospel? You just have to ask the question. I don't even know that I have the answer. We've already seen in his writings that he said the reason we might have these codes is so that the gospel is not slandered or maligned. So we at least have to say, was that a purpose? Yes. I, I don't want to prove text, but I just think that I mean is that Jesus said, bless those who are persecuted. Like, I think there's almost this expectation that the gospel is going to be because he'd say it was a distraction he'd say that the gospel message is really not about household codes but people are starting to do things and say things about the gospel and they're getting distracted in the do women have too much freedom i mean paul allowed men and women to worship in the same place and to share the love feast together which was again totally scandalous and I think that Paul would probably say, and I want to speak on his behalf, and there isn't a verse where he's actually responding to your question directly. I would just say that based on what I've seen, he's probably saying, let's not let people lose sight of the gospel over those issues. That would probably be the answer. But we at least have to ask if we're going to apply it today. We have to ask the question, was the original prescriptions that he's given based on the idea that maybe he was trying to protect the gospel? Second question, did Paul's prescriptions assume an ideal situation? Like in husbands and wives, doesn't it assume that a husband is sacrificing before we see that a woman submits? Or is it just automatic? What about abusive fathers? What about fathers who want to go after their kids and do them harm? Should children submit to that? Is, is that part of the ideal? Going back to some of the places that Ben is talking about, like what if what they're saying is crazy? How do you honor them in that situation? What about slaves and masters in the question now about well, what's slavery look like today? It doesn't look, I mean, look, it was horrible back then, but you might describe it as even more horrible today. Heather. I was just going to say, like, well, that's the problem, though, is that you're splitting that up. Because in the instance of sexual slavery, how is the slave supposed to treat the master the same way if it's not, if it's not respecting them? You know, or with wives and husbands, too. And isn't that master that we're talking about probably a master who's hearing this letter? Like, isn't that master presumed to be a believer? 
I mean, elsewhere, Paul is saying, like, master and servant are both brothers in Christ, basically. Like, the slave and the freed are brothers together, which is also a shocking statement to create that kind of equality. But it would assume that they're both in Christ. So in a lot of the situations that we'd probably think of today, that's not going on. I don't think that anyone who's holding people into sex slavery is probably all, well, who knows? I don't know what's going on, but... Probably, ideally, that's not going on where they're going to church on Sunday and then holding people in sex slavery, okay? So the question that I'm just asking is before we just wholesale take everything that Paul does and apply it, we at least have to ask, is the situation a little bit different because Paul was prescribing what was supposed to happen? He is prescribing. He's not just, you know, giving suggestions. But maybe in many situations it can't be applied so easily, or are we supposed to submit anyway? Third question is, would Paul give the same prescription today in these places? Like, would he say the same exact thing to slave and masters, children, parents, wives, and husbands? Jeremy? I think we think of slavery and we think of sex trafficking, but I don't think there's much difference these days in our economy between slavery and employees. I mean, if you look at the way employees are treated, low wages, um, you know, whether it's trying to take away rights to bargain. I mean, however you want to, like whatever context you want to put it in, like there's still a lot of, um, you're still at a disadvantage in a lot of places, whether it's you make a low, you know, you make a low salary, you pay too much in rent, or, you know, you you don't have health insurance, I mean, you know, or you don't have a way to provide for yourself and, you know, in that kind of way. So I, I, mean, I don't want to be all pessimistic, but I don't think there's a whole lot of difference for like large parts of our employment population between how they're treated and like how the, the corporation looks at them as a, as a way to either make you, you produce something for me and if you stop doing that, then I'm just gonna fire you and replace you with someone else or I'm gonna outsource you or whatever. Like, it's almost like employees are commodities. I'm so glad you said that, I really am, because when I was talking earlier about how we couldn't imagine a world today without employees, and how like, that would be shocking to our economic system. They couldn't imagine a world without slaves. Well, I believe that today the closest analogy to the slaves that he was talking about are the employees. I think that he would look at something like sex trafficking and find that just horrific on every level. Uh, I don't know that he would give the exact same advice of like, hey, girls or guys or who boys or whatever's involved in that, like, just obey your earthly masters. Like, I think that employees are the closest connection because it is true that the employment relationship has shifted substantially and we can mistreat those people and they are living on subsistence and even worse, think about it globally. I mean, as I, you guys know, I mean, I teach here at, at APU and we're always talking about globalization. One of the absolute effects of globalization is we can find kids and people who can't work for more than 10 cents an hour or 10 cents a day and they can make all the stuff that we're wearing and all the things that, we're, you know, that are around this room for us. And that is no less the kind of economic issue that is being addressed here. So we're seeing it in our own country, but the reason it's happening so much in our country is because we're doing it to everybody else. So I think that's definitely something that he would, and would he say to those people, hey, submit to your earthly masters? Uh, you know. All right, let me close. These are questions you should think about before we wholesale apply everything, although I will tell you, I believe that what he's saying applies to us. But you're going to have to at least ask these questions and see how it might tweak how it applies, right? I don't think we can say, well, that was then. Now it's some crazy first century stuff going on, and we're not like that anymore. Actually, I think we're a lot like that. Because remember, his bottom line is submit to one another. So what about you?
how do I submit to you in practical application terms? What would it look like if I put you ahead of me? How would this unity even work? And think about this for a moment. How would I use my money if I put you ahead of me? Whether I've traveled with you for a long time or for five minutes, how would we deal with one another? And how would I use my money if I really was going to submit to you? How would my time look if I was going to submit to you? Would it be as busy as I am with no time for you, or would I find ways to free myself so that I could give you my time and put your needs and your interests ahead of my own? What would I do with my possessions if I valued you above me? How would I work with them? How would I steward them? How would I make sure that I didn't buy things that only applied to me, but that I kept things aside so that I could give to you and share with you my possessions? What about my food and consumption patterns? When so many people don't have that, how would that look different? How would I treat my own consumption of what I make or what I have or what I'm afforded if I was really valuing you and putting your interests ahead of me? How would my home look? How would I invite you into it? How would it be in a way that I really gave you everything and put your interests ahead of mine, even with the things that are near and dear to us and very intimate to us, like a home? What about my priorities? How would I reorder them so that I submitted to you? Because if you're unified with me in Christ, it doesn't mean that I only do this because I think you're important or because I know you for a long time, but it's just because you are in Christ with me. We're part of the same. What about my dreams and goals and how would I submit those to you? All of these things are the picture that we have to solve. Because Paul says that we already have the unity from the Spirit. We're to maintain it, he says in Ephesians. So it's not like we can work towards it. We're supposed to work to keep it. Because it's already been given by the fact that the same Spirit resides in all of us and that we are all in Christ together. So how would these things look if I continually submitted to you and you in turn did the same with me? And we kept doing this until we either were unified or we looked like the recycling symbol. <laughs> All of this, of course, has to be done in Christ. And without Christ, it can't be done. Let's pray. Lord, giver of life, you give us everything and a chance to even participate in the unity of your triune nature. You even give us a chance to experience what it's like to be so close that the three are one. And Lord, even though we can't understand it, even though it boggles our mind, even though we can scarcely keep it in even after we've seen it, Lord, the important thing to remember is that your words about submission are a better way. That while we struggle to hang on to rights and our own interests, while we struggle with our own sinfulness and our own selfishness, you're inviting us to lay all that down and be unified in you. And Lord, I'm thankful that we can call you by name. I'm thankful that we have the deposit of your Holy Spirit. I'm thankful that your Holy Spirit helps us to do these things that are otherwise impossible for us to do. 
So Lord, do something unique here. Let us in this room, the people here right now, be a model of unity. Let others wonder at how it is that people could do this kind of thing and let them be attracted to the beauty of your way. Pray this in your name. Amen.